At least 55 people are confirmed dead in the catastrophic wildfires in Maui, and Hawaii's governor says he expects that number to rise. It's Friday, August 11th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, Iran has released five Americans from a Tehran prison following a prisoner swap with the U.S. Also, a Utah man was killed by federal agents after making violent threats toward President Biden. So we've seen a rise in the number of threats against public officials, whether it be law enforcement or uh, judicial officers or even public health officials, too. And this hour, a look back at the early years of Boston's hip-hop history with one of its longest-running artists. We had a lot of Black-owned clubs that were a catalyst in helping out the whole scene by letting us have talent shows. Sunny and low 80s today. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The governor of Hawaii is warning that the death toll from fast-moving wildfires in Maui will rise. At least 55 people have died after the blazes broke out across the island earlier this week. Governor Josh Green says the government is working to find shelter for hundreds of people who are forced to evacuate their homes on the west side of the island. It's our intent to initially seek 2,000 rooms so that we can get housing for people. That will mean reaching out to all of our hotels and those in the community. President Biden has declared a federal disaster declaration for the state. Maui Police Chief John Pelletier says the fires have destroyed the livelihoods of many residents and warned that rebuilding will take time. We have a scar on the face of Maui that will be here for a very long time. We know that scars uh, heal in time but they always remain. Nearly 11,000 customers remain without power across the island. Authorities say the wildfire that engulfed the historic town of Lahaina is 80 percent contained. In Michigan, each of the 16 defendants in an alleged fake elector plot to give the state's 2020 electoral college votes to former President Donald Trump has now pleaded not guilty. Michigan Public Radio's Colin Jackson reports. The defendants are accused of falsely representing themselves as Michigan's electors and submitting a document claiming such to Congress and the National Archives. State prosecutors say it was an attempt to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential race. The defendants each face eight felony counts, most relating to forgery. The most serious of the charges carry 14-year sentences. Some members of the group, including a former Michigan Republican Party co-chair and an incumbent West Michigan city mayor, had already pleaded not guilty at earlier arraignments. Now the rest of their co-defendants have joined them. For NPR News, I'm Colin Jackson in Lansing. The United States says it will hold military leaders in Niger accountable for the safety of the country's democratically elected president. Michael Koloki reports the West African heads of state met yesterday to discuss the situation two weeks after President Mohamed Bazoum was ousted from office. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said the United States supports the West African Regional Group ECOWAS and the group's call for the restoration of constitutional order in Niger. Blinken added that the U.S. is calling for the immediate release of ousted President Mohamed Bazoum and that the U.S. would hold the junta accountable for the safety and security of Bazoum and his family. That's Michael Koloki reporting. 
This is NPR News in Washington. I'm Rupa Shanoi. This is WBUR in Boston. COVID cases in Massachusetts are the highest they've been in six months. The Department of Health says COVID wastewater numbers have been increasing since July. Hospitalizations have only increased slightly in the state. Officials say that although the virus is not as severe for most people anymore, the risks are still high for people who are older or immunized immunocompromised. The COVID spike is affecting operations this morning at the Steamship Authority. The ferry service has canceled a half dozen trips in and out of Martha's Vineyard through 11 a.m. today. That's due to staffing shortages caused by COVID. The company says the cancellations will free up remaining staff to keep at least one ferry running to the island. Impacted customers will be seated as space becomes available. The mayor of Quincy isn't happy with Boston's plan to build a new bridge to Long Island. The bridge is a key part of Boston's plans to reopen substance use treatment facilities. The only way to the bridge from the mainland is through Quincy, but Mayor Thomas Koch says the extra traffic negatively impacts residents in Quincy's Squanton neighborhood. I'm okay with what they want to do at the island. I find it offensive that the only route they choose is by car. And I think that is, uh, in this day and age, I think it's uh, really short-sighted. Koch says a better plan would be to use ferries to transport people to and from the island. He says he'll appeal the state's decision to allow Boston to rebuild the bridge. That plan still requires additional state and federal approval. People in Massachusetts can now take advantage of the state's new electric vehicle incentive program. As WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports, the plan includes a new rebate program for used EVs and extra incentives for lower-income residents. In the past, only new electric vehicles were eligible for rebates. But starting this week, you can get up to $3,500 for buying a new or used EV. Low-income residents can also get an extra $1,500 rebate. Those rebates combined will help make the price of an EV more affordable, says Elizabeth Mahoney. She's the head of the Department of Energy Resources. The fact that we are making these available at the point of sale means that nobody needs to finance this. Nobody needs to come up with $5,000 and then get paid back. Massachusetts residents who buy EVs can also apply for federal tax credits. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser. It's 7.06. WBUR supporters include the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. The Red Sox closed out their four-game series with Kansas City with another victory. The final score was 2-0. to zero. The Sox remain at home tonight where they'll host the Detroit Tigers. It was a rough start to the Patriots' preseason. They lost to the Houston Texans last night 20-9. And Canton's Little League team lost to Maine last night in the New England Regional Tournament. The final score was 2-1. to one. That means Maine moves on to the Little League World Series in Pennsylvania next week. Sunny and breezy today. Temperatures will rise to the low 80s, mostly clear tonight, and it falls to the low 60s. Tomorrow, it'll be sunny with highs in the mid-80s. Clouds move in throughout the evening, bringing a chance of rain overnight. Sunday starts with a chance of rain, then we'll have highs in the upper 80s. Right now, it's 66 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. For the perfect spot to host your next event, discover City Space, WBUR's hidden gem on Commonwealth Avenue. Whether for a gala, board meeting, or wedding, 
City Space is the ideal setting for unforgettable occasions in a gorgeous state-of-the-art venue. We'll help make your vision a reality. More at WBUR.org slash rentals. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Wildfires in Maui, now mostly contained, have killed 55 people. So what can authorities do for those who survived? That's a big question for the head of the Federal Emergency Management Agency. Deanne Criswell visits Maui today. She spoke with A. Martinez on the way in and said she will be under a disaster declaration signed by the president. It will help reimburse the jurisdictions for a lot of the costs that they are incurring, but it also allows us to bring in all of our federal partners to support any of the remaining response needs as they're still working to extinguish the fire and as they need additional debris removal assets. All of that is covered within this. But I also think another important piece of what this disaster declaration does is it helps the individuals that have been impacted through our individual assistance program. And it provides things like reimbursement or some cash assistance for some of the repairs that they may need. But we also understand that people have lost everything. And so this is designed to jumpstart their recovery. But it also brings crisis counseling and disaster unemployment assistance, right? So all these other needs that these communities may have as a result of this wildfire. So people in Hawaii will get help with temporary housing, home repairs, any losses that are not insured, that kind of thing? Yeah, the first thing is they need to go to their insurance company because that's the first step in the process. And then we know many people may be underinsured or have no insurance. And so we can support with some of the additional costs. We're actually going to have to come up with creative solutions, right, to help meet the needs on Maui because it is isolated. It's remote. We don't necessarily have the ability to bring in our traditional resources. And so we'll have to really work closely with the governor and his team and be creative in how we're going to be able to provide the immediate sheltering, which we're supporting right now, but then the long-term temporary housing that's going to be needed while they rebuild. And what kind of more basic things is the state of Hawaii asking FEMA to provide? The big focus right now is still on life-saving, right? We're sending in search and rescue teams to make sure that anybody that's unaccounted for, that we can account for them. But we're also sending in communications equipment because we know that there's communications outages. Um, But we also have a, a distribution center on the island. And through that distribution center, we've been able to provide food and water and cots to support the immediate sheltering needs. So The focus the next few days is on making sure we have all the right resources to save lives, but also to support those people that are currently being sheltered. Will FEMA on these things work with, say, the Coast Guard, the Navy, or the military in some way to get help to the people in Hawaii? Absolutely. So what this federal declaration does is it allows us basically to give them an assignment to go support. So the governor will ask for something. He'll have a need. He may not know exactly what resource he needs but he'll have a need to have something accomplished. And then we can go out to our federal partners through this declaration and give them a mission assignment and have them go provide the assistance to the governor to help support that need. How long does FEMA expect to stay and to to be there to oversee things? Yeah, we don't even need to put a timetable on it. We will be there as long as the governor needs us there, right? And and we know that we're going to have a lot of resources in there supporting this response. But even after the cameras go away, we are going to be there to support the recovery needs. And our personnel will stay there for as long as it takes. And we also have an office right there on Oahu, right? So we have personnel that are stationed there each and every day that will just 
surge that up to provide additional support um, to help the governor meet his needs. I know that this is what FEMA does, and I'm sure you've dealt with a lot of disasters in your career. But what are you expecting when you get to Hawaii? You know, it just, it never gets any easier to see the amount of devastation that these communities experience. And, you know, I'm looking at some of the images as many, you know, people are across the the country, and we're seeing this entire community just devastated. And so that part of it is always so heart-wrenching when you go out there and you see people's lives just really turned upside down. But what I'll also say is I always see just the human spirit and how it comes together and how people really come together to help each other, the resiliency and the resolve that they have to get through this. And it always gives me hope to see such great uh, human spirit and human collaboration of people, neighbors helping neighbors, really, really stepping up to make sure that they're taking care of each other's needs. That's FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell. Thank you very much. Thank you. Should corporations and the people who run them be allowed to use bankruptcy court to avoid liability for allegations of wrongdoing? That's the question at the center of a case involving OxyContin and its maker, Purdue Pharma, and members of the Sackler family who own that company. The Supreme Court on Thursday temporarily blocked the corporation's $6 billion bankruptcy agreement with its creditors. The deal would have shielded the Sacklers from lawsuits related to the opioid crisis. Now the U.S. Supreme Court agreed late yesterday to review that controversial agreement. NPR's addiction correspondent Brian Mann has been following this story and joins us. Hi, Brian. Morning, Sarah. This bankruptcy deal has been fought over in the courts for years now. A lot of people thought it was settled. Why is the Supreme Court intervening now? Yeah, this bankruptcy deal was approved by a federal judge back in 2021, but it allowed members of the Sackler family, even though they're not bankrupt, to pay a big chunk of money in exchange for immunity from lawsuits. Uh, The Justice Department appealed, and so now the Supreme Court's agreed to look at one really specific legal question. Here's Lindsay Simon. She's a bankruptcy law expert at Emory University. It's not getting into the merits of whether the Sacklers deserve releases. It's strictly this idea of, does the bankruptcy code give the court, the bankruptcy court, the power to confirm a plan like Purdue Pharma's plan that gives the Sacklers releases? Justices are going to hear arguments on this in December. And until then, Sarah, none of the $6 billion in this proposed settlement will be paid out to opioid victims or communities. Right. So no victims will get settlements until then. How are people harmed by these drugs responding to that? You know, the overwhelming majority of opioid victims, people who suffered addiction or lost loved ones to OxyContin overdoses, they've backed this deal. You know, if it's upheld, they'll get $750 million in compensation. Communities that sued Purdue Pharma also support it. They're in line to receive billions. So really, the Justice Department is the last holdout here appealing this. And in legal briefs, the DOJ argued that If the Sacklers get away with this, it will serve, and I'm quoting here, it will serve as a roadmap for wealthy corporations and individuals to misuse the bankruptcy system. And that's an important point. I mean, we do know that the Supreme Court, of course, sets precedent. What might this mean for other types of big bankruptcy cases? Well, it it could be huge. What's happened over the last decade is all kinds of wealthy companies and individuals accused of wrongdoing have done this. They've used the power of bankruptcy court uh, to block lawsuits, to limit their liability without ever having to actually file for bankruptcy. Critics, including the DOJ and many legal experts, say that's an effort to skirt accountability. And Brian, other, other examples of this, have other big companies done this before? 
Yeah, absolutely. We've been talking about the Sacklers and Purdue Pharma, but the Koch brothers, who are also billionaires, used a bankruptcy maneuver in an asbestos case. Johnson & Johnson, one of the richest corporations in the U.S., drew a lot of attention when they used bankruptcy to try to block tens of thousands of lawsuits linked to claims that its talc baby powder caused ovarian cancer. Lindsay Simon at Emory University says the Supreme Court is now going to settle once and for all whether bankruptcy courts were meant to wield this kind of power. It will be the decision that really sways whether these are even bankruptcy deals in the first place. So this case is going to bring the Sacklers and the opioid crisis before the Supreme Court at a time when tens of thousands of people are still dying from overdoses every year. But the outcome could affect a whole lot of bankruptcy cases, ranging from product safety lawsuits to environmental claims and even sexual assault cases. Lots at stake there. That's NPR's Brian Mann. Thanks so much, Brian. Thank you, Sarah. Florida teachers now need a parent's signature before they may use a student's nickname in class. That's one consequence of the state's parental rights and education law, also known as the Don't Say Gay law. So naming consent forms have been mailed to parents in Central Florida. From WMFE in Orlando, Danielle Pryor reports. Florida parents like Jennifer Devine are getting creative signing the new form that allows students to be called by a nickname or other chosen name. And my response was, um, anything she so chooses because she is an independent individual and not a damn object. Devine is not a fan of the new form. Seminole and Orange County schools in Central Florida have already sent out the required paperwork to parents this week. Under the Parental Rights in Education, or Don't Say Gay law, teachers can't use a child's preferred pronouns. They also can't call a child a name that's different from the one on their birth certificate unless a parent signs off. Judy Hayes has two kids in Orange County and calls the process frustrating. She says the school system has much bigger issues to solve, including a bus driver shortage. We're just wasting the school's resources. You know, we're wasting their time. We're wasting their energy with nonsense like you know, having kids sign off on nickname forms. These nickname forms, as she calls them, came with this guidance from the Florida Department of Education. If Robert wants to be called Bobby, he needs a form. And if Robert, who's transitioning, wants to be called Roberta, she also needs a form. For Jen Cousins, who has four kids in Orange County schools, it's just another attack on LGBTQ kids. One of her children is non-binary, and she worries about name shaming. Does it just take one one bad person in a school to say, hey, I heard them using their nickname today or, you know, go report somebody. Nobody knows. The Department of Education says these new rules are needed so as not to confuse children. Cousins finally decided to fill out the form this way. That they may be called Safi, and then I said, or any other name they choose to go by because the BOE is not the parent of my child. Cousins has heard from parents who are debating whether to put a joke name on the form, but they weren't sure of the repercussions. For NPR News, I'm Danielle Pryor in Orlando. It's been great sharing the studio this week with Sarah McCammon, who is on loan from NPR's Politics Podcast. Sarah, thanks for coming by. It's always so good to be here, Steve. Fun to share the studio with you. Yeah, absolutely. It's been great. It's been great. What are you going to be covering next? So I'm wrapping up some coverage uh, from a reporting trip, a fellowship I took to Rwanda a couple weeks ago. Brought back some some, um, interesting conversations from that trip. And then I'll be heading to Milwaukee for the Republican debate in a couple weeks. Oh, that's right. More politics to cover. Sarah McCammon. Thanks so much. This is NPR News.
Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. You've made it to the end of the week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the case of an armed Utah man killed by FBI agents after making threats against President Biden is highlighting concerns about an increase in political violence. It's 719. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. On the 50th anniversary of hip-hop, we'll take a special look at how the West Coast helped make hip-hop one of the most dominant cultural forces in the world. What hip-hop was in the 90s, specifically for South Central, was just journalism. Taking the microphone and showing the world how much you were ignoring Black America. Mm -hmm. That's On Point this morning at 10 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Clear skies and breezy today with a high near 84. Skies stay clear tonight and it falls to a low around 64. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with a high near 85. There's a slight chance of showers and thunderstorms Saturday night. Sunday, another chance of rain and thunderstorms in the morning, then partly sunny and we'll have a high near 86. Right now it's 67 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm A. Martinez. Fifty years ago today, DJ Cool Herc hosted a dance party in the Bronx called Back to School Jam at Mission 25 Cents with the ladies, 50 for the fellows. Now, little did they know that pocket change bought them tickets to history. August 11th, 1973 is now regarded as the birth of hip hop. Of course, African-Americans created the art form, but Latinos have played an essential historic role in the birth and evolution of hip-hop. Joining us to discuss are Felix Contreras of the NPR music podcast Alt-Latino and his former co-host Jasmine Garst. Jasmine, let's start with you here. Uh, Just how important uh, is the role of Latinos uh, in terms of the beginning of hip-hop? You just cannot talk about the origins of hip-hop without talking about Latinos. Hip-hop is born in New York. Furthermore, it's born in the Bronx. So it brings this amazing mix of African-American culture and various Caribbean and Latino cultures. So from the very beginning, you're talking about Ruby D from the seminal group Fantastic Five, DJ Disco Wiz, and later on Kid Frost from LA and Mellow Man Ace. He's known as the godfather of Latin rap. He's Cuban-American, also from California. Here's the 1989 song, Mentirosa. Did I hear you rapping on that in the background there, eh? I might have been. I might have been. <laughs> 
that song by Mellow Man Ace 2 was so fun because that was one of the first times that I could kind of express myself, my culture, my language in English and Spanish to some of my friends. I was working at a department store and I used to rap that song to all my friends who were just so amazed to hear rap in Spanish. Yeah, well, by the 90s, you have an explosion of artists like Cypress Hill, Nori, Big Pun, Hurricane G. We lost her last year. Now, Felix, hip-hop has had a worldwide reach. I mean, did, did hip-hop change at all when it actually reached Latin America, the Caribbean, and South America, or beyond just the language? You know, where the impact was felt was in the rhythms, okay? Because what happened is underneath, you know, you have people beatboxing and stuff here in the United States. But what happened in Latin America is that they started adding rhythms and traditions from the Afro-Caribbean, from the Andean, and everywhere in between. Now, I know that you featured a lot of these artists on your podcast, uh, Felix. So who has stood out to you? One of the first artists that I ever interviewed, a hip-hop artist, was a young woman named Ana Tiju. She's from Chile, and I was fascinated by the way she played with language and the way she played with rhythm. Here's her track, 1977. <laughs> It's so, can I just say, it's like so amazing what she does with the words. Like she turns them into like plastic or something. It's just, she really uses her voice and her words as an instrument in itself. One of the other groups that became very, very influential in Latin music and also in Latin hip-hop was Calle 13. And we interviewed them very, very early on. And they became the, the like the biggest Latin Grammy winner. There's so many different awards, accolades, influences. One of the tracks that they released just before the two brothers split up and went their separate ways was a track called Latino America. And I, and I've always felt like it's like the definitive statement on uh, Latin American history, politics, sensibilities. Soy lo que dejaron, soy toda la sobra de lo que se robaron, un pueblo escondido en la cima, mi piel es de cuero, por eso aguanta cualquier clima, soy una fábrica de humo, mano de obra campesina para tu consumo, frente de frío en el medio del verano, el amor en los tiempos del cólera, mi hermano, el sol que nace y el día que muere. Jasmine, what have been your favorite interviews on Alt Latino? I think one of the interviews that I hold closest to my heart is uh, Puerto Rican rapper Tego Calderon. He's really, you know, one of the founding fathers of, of reggaeton, which is this genre that blends elements of hip hop and Caribbean beats. And I traveled to Puerto Rico and we spent a lot of time in, at his house talking about uh, his love of reggaeton, about politics, about being a black Puerto Rican and how a lot of times reggaeton and the general Latin music industry overlooks its own black roots. All right, Jasmine, so we're hearing a lot of muchachos. Tell me about the role of Latinas in this genre. Yeah, I think just like hip-hop in the United States, and just like, honestly, any musical genre, uh, it has struggled with misogyny, but it's just filled with brilliant female pioneers. And I don't think I could not mention uh, Puerto Rico's iconic 
Evie Queen. She's like the the mother of Puerto Rican reggaeton, an amazing rapper. And before we play this track, it's a track called Yo Quiero Bailar, and it, it is saying that, yeah, we're going to be in a club. It's from her perspective, from a female dance perspective, right? We're going to be in a club. We're going to dance. We're going to get very, very suggestive. It's going to get very hot and steamy, but it doesn't mean I want to go home in bed with you. This song is just so ahead of its time. This song came out in the early 2000s, and I've listened to it a gazillion times, but just listening to it again right now, I'm thinking Evie Queen was really ahead of her time in singing about, you know, I want to be free, I want to dance. That doesn't mean anything. I don't owe you anything with my body. That's Jasmine Gartz and Felix Contreras. Their latest episode of the podcast, Alt Latino, looks back at how they've covered hip-hop in Espanol over the years, including their interview with Bad Bunny. And that's at nprmusic.org. Thanks, you two. Thank you. Thanks for having us. This was so much fun. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next, then coming up at 7.45 on WBUR's Morning Edition. One of Boston's longest-running hip-hop artists, E.G. Ed O.G., helps us mark 50 years of hip-hop history. It's 7.29. Use the WBUR app to keep listening live wherever you go today. It lets you pause and rewind live radio. Find it in your app store today. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Wildfires in Hawaii are now blamed for at least 55 deaths, and authorities believe that number may rise as they search more burned homes and businesses in Maui. Hundreds of buildings were destroyed by the flames, forcing thousands of residents and tourists to evacuate. NPR's Jason DeRose spoke to travelers at the Kahului Airport, where crowds of people are continuing to leave Maui. Kathy Johnson and her husband were on vacation from Orange County, California, when the fires swept through Lahaina. They evacuated their timeshare in a school bus that brought them to the airport where they spent the night. Johnson says she feels compassion for the people of Maui whose homes and livelihoods were destroyed. You know what? It's, for us, it's vacation. For them, it's, it's their everything. Johnson and her husband have a flight scheduled home midway from Maui when the airport is expected to be inundated with people leaving the island. Jason DeRose, NPR News, Maui. A federal judge is scheduled to hear arguments today on a request by prosecutors to impose a protective order against former President Donald Trump. It stems from charges accusing Trump of trying to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Special counsel Jack Smith says the order is to prevent the former president from publicly disclosing evidence in the case. 
This is NPR News. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Families in Dorchester and Mattapan say they felt blindsided when Boston closed all the city-owned pools in their neighborhoods for the summer. But as WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, city officials knew the closures were coming months in advance. Boston City Councilor Aaron Murphy held a hearing in March after learning about half of the city's pools could be closed for a second summer in a row. In the end, 10 of the city's 18 pools were shuttered, including all the pools in Dorchester and Mattapan. City officials say they're doing long-delayed maintenance and renovations on adjoining school buildings. Councilor Murphy says the closures could have been better planned. This money is city money, tax dollars. And, you know, the, the family showing up to go swimming... They don't care. They don't want to know that it's one department squabbling with another. They just want it fixed. The city says it hopes to reopen four of the closed pools by fall. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. The MBTA is enacting new safety measures for employees working close to third rails. This is after at least two workers were injured along the red line last week. Crew members must now turn off electrified third rails or place protective covering over them when doing maintenance work nearby. State regulators are also reviewing a corrective action plan submitted by the T. Vice President Kamala Harris is set to be in Massachusetts this weekend. Harris is scheduled to make an appearance at a Martha's Vineyard fundraiser on Saturday. First Lady Jill, First Lady Jill Biden visited the area earlier this summer. Republican Ron DeSantis attended a fundraiser on Cape Cod last month. It's 733. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com. The Red Sox finished their four-game series against the Royals with a 2-0 victory. The Sox are back home at Fenway tonight. This time, they'll host the Detroit Tigers. The New England Patriots fell to Houston in their preseason opener. Final score was 20-9. A sunny Friday today. We'll have high temperatures in the low 80s. Tonight's skies stay clear and it falls to the low 60s. Then Saturday starts out sunny with highs in the mid-80s. Clouds gather in the evening and there's a slight chance of showers and thunderstorms. On Sunday morning, there are more showers possible. Then it'll be partly sunny with highs in the upper 80s. Right now it's 67 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the new season of Silent Witness. Every dead body tells a story in this long-running forensic crime drama starring Amelia Fox. New season streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Good morning. What led federal agents to shoot and kill a man in Provo, Utah? The agents were trying to arrest Craig Robertson, who was 75 and who had a history of making violent threats against President Biden and other public officials. Extremism experts say many Americans see violence as an acceptable means of resolving political differences. NPR's Lisa Hagen covers this. Hey there, Lisa. Hi. Let's start with the case at hand. What threats was Robertson accused of making? 
Yeah, the FBI got a tip from a social media company about him posting with some really direct language about traveling to New York to fulfill a dream of, quote, eradicating Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. He filed the first criminal complaint against Donald Trump. The charging documents show dozens of similar posts uh, directed at a number of other public officials, including New York Attorney General Letitia James, the governor of California, uh, U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland, and, of course, the president. Well, let's talk about this because, of course, they're public figures and we have freedom of speech. You are broadly allowed to say terrible, terrible, terrible things about public officials. When does it cross the line into something illegal? Yeah, when you're talking about specific targets, specific locations, uh, and you're showing access to the weapons you need to take out violent acts. Oh, as in this case when someone says, I'm eager to go to New York to do this specific thing. Uh, How often are people saying things like this? So I spoke with Seamus Hughes at the University of Nebraska's Counterterrorism Center. He's been tracking the number of federal arrests like this over threats to public officials in the last decade. He said in 2013, there were just over 30 of these arrests. And last year, there were 72. Hmm. Here's Hughes. But, you know, you also have to put this in context of how many cases they deal with. You're talking about hundreds of thousands of tips they get about threats. And many a times the FBI will knock on the door say, what are you doing online? Knock it off. It's basically a diversion program. And those individuals will move on with their lives. The smaller subset, you have to bring up federal charges. He says public threats are increasingly easy to make. We all have access to social media. Federal law enforcement is focusing more on domestic extremism. And he talks about something he called mood music, which is, you know, the general atmosphere created by partisan media, public leaders and online communities. Oh, well, is that mood music mainly coming from the political right, essentially Robertson's side of the political spectrum? Yeah, ominous rhetoric about the deep state and stolen elections is almost entirely coming from the right, as is most of the violence. Um, I talked to Catherine Keneally with the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, and she points out also that within right-wing storylines, Republicans seen as disloyal are also villains along with Democrats and liberals. She lives in Montana, and she worries the kind of rhetoric Robertson used has really shifted from the fringes of the Internet to regular daily life. I can go out my front door, hear a conversation, and the things that he was posting online, I can hear at a bar. Um, I can hear in line at my grocery store. It is not very uncommon by any means. People hear over and over again that the government is coming for us and our freedoms, and there's no one person to blame for this kind of rhetoric. It's profitable, and in a country with free speech, it's legal. NPR's Lisa Hagan, thanks so much. Thanks. Attorney John Eastman is asking for the postponement of a disciplinary proceeding that could end with his disbarment. Eastman is a former law professor and attorney close to former President Donald Trump. The California State Bar says he planned, promoted, and assisted Trump in trying to overturn the legitimate results of the 2020 election. In all, Eastman faces 11 charges, most related to making false statements and misrepresentations. Among them, statements at a January 6th rally that the State Bar says helped provoke the mob that attacked the Capitol. All we are demanding of Vice President Pence is this afternoon at one o'clock 
He let the legislatures of the state look into this so we get to the bottom of it and the American people know whether we have control of the direction of our government or not. Joining us now is Scott Cummings. He's a scholar and professor of legal ethics at the UCLA School of Law. Thanks so much for your time, Professor Cummings. Thanks for having me. First of all, what does it mean for an attorney to be disbarred and why might it happen? Disbarment is the ultimate sanction. It says that a lawyer is permanently denied the privilege of practicing law, representing clients, full stop. And this happens for the most extreme conduct. And that's what John Eastman is facing. His lawyers say if the proceedings, the disbarment proceedings are not delayed, that could create a conflict with his Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. What does that mean in this context? And what might it suggest uh, in terms of the legal jeopardy he's facing? Well, I think the issue is that uh, he's widely reputed to be co-conspirator number two in the federal indictment that was uh, issued by Jack Smith. And so I think his concern is that if he makes statements in the uh, bar proceedings, um, they might be used as evidence against him in the event that Jack Smith decides to ultimately uh, indict John Eastman. I think there's a lot of speculation right now that Smith has sort of crafted the indictment to singularly focus on Trump, but that uh, he might subsequently decide to pursue the co-conspirators. John Eastman could be in legal jeopardy in that regard. Eastman is not alone in Trump's legal circle in facing disciplinary actions related to efforts to overturn the election. Chief among them, uh, New York and D.C., have already suspended Rudy Giuliani's license to practice. What kind of evidence is needed to successfully discipline attorneys in these cases? Well, the evidence that's required uh, must be provided by clear and convincing evidence. So it's a very high standard. It's interesting if you look at the charges that have been levied against Eastman in the California proceedings, um, but the bulk of the claims are really about misrepresentation in the service of bad actions, what the California rules call moral turpitude. And so the evidence that the bar is putting out is that there there are lies that have been used to advance bad acts, uh, bad acts like advancing a false theory of how to overturn the election, pressuring Pence to do this, uh, making statements at the ellipse on January 6th that were designed to whip up the crowd. Obviously, a process like disbarment has big implications for the attorney himself or herself. But what purpose does it serve, say, in you know preserving the integrity of the legal system? So part of discipline is about taking out bad actors and signaling what the legal profession stands for. And in this particular case, I think the consequences of not disbarring John Eastman, if in fact the evidence stands up, uh, in the bar proceedings are enormous because if someone can simply get out of trouble, essentially, because of their purported personal belief in a different set of facts, then the regulatory function, I think, is in, is in great peril. Scott Cummings is a professor of legal ethics at the UCLA School of Law. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. This is NPR News. Coming up at the top of the hour on Morning Edition, the latest on the devastating fires in Hawaii that have killed at least 55 people. 
Sunny and mid-80s today, mostly clear and mid-60s tonight. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and mid-80s. It grows mostly cloudy Saturday night, and there's a chance of showers. Sunday, another chance of showers in the morning, then partly sunny and mid-80s. It's 68 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. And the ICA Watershed in East Boston. Last chance to visit. See art on both sides of the harbor. Closes September 4th. ICABoston.org. Boston-based Icana Oncology plans to acquire a San Francisco-based immunotherapy startup. The company is buying Pioneer Immunotherapeutics in a stock-for-stock deal. Icana will get all of Pioneer's assets, including $43 million in cash. The MBTA is making progress in hiring new workers. The T has hired 782 people so far this year. It has lost another 475. More bus drivers have left than any other job in in the organization. T officials are hoping to increase staffing in order to remove slowdowns and service cuts on the T. It's 744. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BioNova Scientific, GMP manufacturing services for biologics. BioNovaScientific.com, where concept becomes cure. This is WBOR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shinoy. Today is Hip Hop Celebration Day. The story goes that a DJ launched the genre 50 years ago today at a block party in the Bronx. The scene spread throughout New York, then made its way to other cities, including Boston. And one person who's been a major presence in local hip hop is Ed O.G. His group, Ed O.G. and the Bulldogs, released Life of a Kid in the Ghetto in 1991. Now growing up, as a kid in the ghetto, there wasn't no horses, no lake or no meadow, and I bet you'll find it hard for you to settle in the house I was at with on the streets. My name was Edo. Ed OG traced his own hip-hop history in a conversation with WBMR's Daryl C. Murphy for our podcast, The Common. I got in, you know, in the early 80s, 81, 82 as a dancer transition into a beatboxer and then to a rapper, uh, MC, excuse me, not a rapper. <laughs> um, you know, that was my transition. And, and in Boston, in the early days, we had a lot of Black-owned clubs that were a catalyst in helping out the whole scene by letting us have talent shows, letting us do performances in their businesses. So I think the the older generation... At first, they was kind of against hip-hop, but then they embraced it. So every region has its own style of hip-hop. What does Boston hip-hop sound like? I think Boston has more of that traditional boom-bap sound. When when we talk about boom-bap, what what is that? I mean, boom-bap is that late 80s, early 90s sound. And it's really, you know, hard drums, dope samples, dope rhymes. You know, it can be hard, like Mob Deep. Or it could be, you know, a little more fun, like De La Soul. Walking, De La Soul can help you breathe when you try. 
tread water. Yeah, and, and the new guys who have taken Boom Bap, shout out to, you know, the whole Griselda and Westside and, you know, that whole Buffalo movement for keeping it traditional. Man, that stuff makes me want to run through a brick wall sometimes, man. Me too. <laughs> tell I tell me. every every time when you hear good Boom Bap, you really want to break something. Yeah. I don't know what it is. <laughs> like. <laughs> so who who were some of the, the names back in that day? Oh, uh, man. I mean, the groups you had, you know, the FTI crew, which was a, a group that I was in when I, I joined them when I was about 14, 15. Um, you had, uh, of course, the Almighty RSO crew. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You had the BK crew. You had the uh, Roxbury Crush crew, uh, Big Chuck and Emo. So we had a lot of um, groups back in the days, man, that were actually selling out, you know, the Lee school, selling out these schools. Cause back in the days we did a lot of shows at schools. So there was, there was a momentum going on in yes. the city with hip hop. Yes. yes. A big momentum. So what happened to that momentum in the nineties during like the crack era, for example? I think once, you know, the nineties and late eighties, once crack kind of really infested the communities and the neighborhoods you know it it just brought a lot of violence it brought a lot of different things that you know we weren't doing in the 80s it was more fun Mm -hmm. it was about partying and having a good time and you know dancing in the 90s boston hip-hop we didn't even have any venues to uh performing Mm. a lot of the older um venues that were owned by black guys they kind of sold them and so it, it wasn't a good time in the 90s what are your hopes for the future of hip-hop in boston What what is it you want to see you know there's a, a bunch of unity amongst the older generation of hip-hop but i'd like to really connect all those dots with all of the you know younger cats and and just kind of you know let everybody know we you know we together in this thing Mm -hmm. you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. i want unity that's that's my main thing like you know supporting each other edo this has been an absolute pleasure thank you so very much for coming through to the common we really really appreciate it i appreciate it too thank you thank you You can hear more of Daryl C. Murphy's conversation with Ed O.G. on WBWAR's podcast, Common. Hey, yo, my work ethic, disperse effort from my first to my worst effort. There's a madness to my method, it's universal. My music is underground and commercial, wholesome and controversial. The routine, no need for rehearsal. Coming up at 8.20 on WBWAR's Morning Edition, thousands of renewable projects are waiting to connect to electrical grids, but that requires new transmission lines. Now some tech companies are proposing quicker solutions. At 7.50. Listeners come to WBUR for insightful, fair, and balanced information. And this is just what we strive to offer our clients as they endeavor to understand the complexities of the real estate market. Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, a WBUR business partner. We really believe when people have good information, they can make great decisions. Because of this, we feel so aligned with the mission of WBUR. For more information, email partnerships at WBUR.org. 
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. Hawaii officials are calling the wildfires there the worst natural disaster in state history after more than 50 people were killed and hundreds of homes were destroyed. The Supreme Court has temporarily blocked a bankruptcy deal by Purdue Pharma Sackler that would give the company protection in opioid-related civil cases. And five American prisoners have been freed from a Tehran prison and are now under house arrest in a new deal between the U.S. and Iran. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. And from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. This is NPR. Mid-80s today under sunny skies. Mid-60s tonight as skies stay clear. Back to the mid-80s on Saturday and it'll be mostly sunny. There's a chance of showers Saturday evening and on Sunday morning. Then partly sunny Sunday and mid-80s again. It's 68 degrees in Boston. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sarah McCammon. Anti-abortion laws recognizing what's known as fetal personhood are being used to prosecute pregnant or postpartum patients with a history of substance abuse. In states including Alabama, Mississippi, Oklahoma, and South Carolina, healthcare providers have shared personal information with law enforcement, sometimes without a warrant or informing the patient. The Marshall Project's Carrie Aspinwall wrote about several mothers who were incarcerated for child endangerment or neglect, even after they delivered healthy babies. Carrie, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I want to start by laying the groundwork here. What exactly is fetal personhood as far as these laws are concerned? Well, with the concept of fetal personhood, this comes from the idea that the fetus should have the exact same rights as a full-born child. And of course, we know that the landscape around Uh, Pregnancy and abortion regulation has changed dramatically with a Supreme Court decision last year that overturned Roe v. Wade. How is that affecting the way that these fetal personhood laws are being used? Well, it's a huge change because the policing of pregnancy in this way is not necessarily new, but what happened last year with Dobbs basically cemented the right of these states to do this because the Dobbs decision said, well, it's really a state's rights issue. And if they want to make a fetal personhood law or give fetuses the exact same rights, they can do that. And what do these prosecutions look like on a practical level? I mean, how are states using these fetal personhood laws to police or prosecute pregnant and postpartum women? So what happens is these women are struggling with substance abuse. They go to their doctor either for prenatal care or they go to the hospital to deliver the child. And They tell someone, their doctor, their nurse, if they're using or they have concerns because they've been using marijuana for morning sickness or in some cases they were struggling with meth addiction or they don't say anything and then the hospital tests them for drugs and it might show up on the mother's test. But in some cases, the mother tested clean and it showed up in the newborn's first bowel movement. And in those cases, the drug use may have happened very early in the pregnancy before the mother knew she was pregnant, and yet they're still prosecuting the women. And what's happening is they can prosecute these women in these states 
without any proof of harm. So the baby can be born perfectly healthy, but that positive drug result will trigger a whole law enforcement investigation where they get access to all the medical records and then are using them to kind of prove a court case against them. Yeah, I want to understand more about how this happens. I mean, in your article, you give an example of a hospital sending a newborn's test results to a clinic without notifying the mother. How did that happen? I mean, is it something that women sign permission over without realizing when it comes to passing on these test results? Well, there is a Supreme Court precedent that comes out of a South Carolina case that says basically, you know, just signing a waiver at the beginning of the hospital doesn't constitute informed consent under the law. But that's kind of what they're doing in some of these cases, we believe. They may notify the woman. Every case is a little different and each state is a little different. I think everyone thinks of privacy rights and medical. You think of HIPAA, right? The privacy rule. But there's a broad exemption under HIPAA for if someone believes a crime has been committed. So that opens the door for these law enforcement agencies through the child welfare investigation sometimes, or through their own investigation, to access these women's medical records. And there's a real question of whether that is being done legally or if they're violating the civil rights of these women in some cases under the HIPAA privacy rule. Now, another concern you mentioned, and something we've heard from doctors and patient advocates, particularly in states where abortion is now illegal, is the possible impact on patients experiencing miscarriage. Is patient information being used to prosecute women in these cases? Yes. Well, there actually have been lots of cases where they've prosecuted women for a stillbirth or miscarriage, allegedly because of a drug test that happened. But the problem is a lot of the causes of miscarriage and stillbirth are genetic, actually. But they're not ruling those causes out. They're just going ahead and using the positive drug test to prosecute it. The medical community, by and large, is very much against these prosecutions because what they don't want is women avoiding getting prenatal care or going to the hospital when they really need it because they're afraid of getting prosecuted or locked up in jail. What is the appropriate role of healthcare providers when they're presented with a person's potentially harmful health information? And how well trained are healthcare providers about this? Well, it's a tough thing because under the law, under these child welfare laws, they've been told, well, you're a mandatory reporter, so you have to mandatorily report this to child welfare agencies. It's a little mixed. This goes state by state. We are in a moment where the legal landscape is changing rapidly because of the Supreme Court decision last year. What do you see happening next when it comes to fetal personhood laws and their application? I think that they are going to expand. You know, the experts I've spoken to say that you're going to see more prosecutors just taking these laws and applying them where they see fit. And until somebody challenges it in court, it remains to be seen what will happen. That's the Marshall Project's Carrie Aspinwall. Carrie, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your reporting. Thank you for having me. Alaska's capital, Juneau, is normally crammed with tourists who come to see those magnificent glaciers. But this week, glacier melt caused by climbing temperatures brought flooding to the city and made Alaskans wonder if their big tourist attraction might be under threat. Brendan Ryan runs glacier hikes and tours in Seward, Alaska. Every glacier that we operate on has become thinner, much shorter, um, and sometimes a lot steeper. He's been a tour operator for two decades, which is long enough to see the landscape transformed. One of the glaciers that we operate on with our helicopter, it's changed so much in the last 13 years that 
when we wrap around the corner in the helicopter and there's this big reveal, you're over this huge alpine valley with this massive glacial face falling down a hill, which we call a, an icefall. That used to be an icefall that turned into this really big tongue of ice. And all of that is gone now. It's a standing lake. Ryan's company provides glacier hikes, one of the most popular services, but he doesn't think he'll be able to offer them much longer. That whole part of the business, I think, will be gone soon. So his company has branched out to water-based recreation like kayaking or paddleboarding. And to those who have hike a glacier on their bucket list, he offers this advice. Act soon. If you push it off for five or six years, that thing that you were thinking about doing either might not be there anymore or it might be an entirely different experience. Not a cheerful reality, but reality. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sarah McCammon. I'm All Things Considered host Lisa Mullins, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. At least 55 people are confirmed dead from wildfires in Hawaii. Some survivors are asking why warning sirens didn't alert them to the danger. It's Friday, August 11th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Rupa Shanoi. Coming up, we hear from the attorney for one of the five Americans freed from a Tehran prison in a new deal between the U.S. and Iran. Also, Poland is moving 10,000 troops to its border with Belarus as concerns grow in Warsaw about the threat from Russia. And this hour, residents in Dorchester and Mattapan are asking why all the city-owned swimming pools in their neighborhoods are closed for repairs in the heat of the summer. That doesn't make sense to me. Why close them all? Leave some open and fix those and then do the others. In sports, Red Sox win sunny and low 80s today. It's 8.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Fast-moving wildfires continue to rage across Maui, leaving widespread destruction in their path. The blazes have decimated the historic town of Lahaina, a popular destination for tourists. Tiffany Kidderwin owns a business there. She says she returned to the community yesterday to get a first-hand look at the damage. As I walked, it started getting worse, power lines down, and then started to see smoke and cars burned and apartment complexes burned. And the further we got on the front street, the more devastating it was. Just everything leveled. Authorities say the wildfire that engulfed Lahaina is now 80 percent contained. At least 55 people have died in the fires, with the death toll expected to rise. Attorneys for former President Donald Trump will be in court today in Washington, D.C. NPR's Kristen Wright reports prosecutors in the 2020 election conspiracy case are asking a judge for a protective order that would seek to prevent Trump from improperly sharing evidence. 
Special counsel Jack Smith's team is legally required to disclose evidence in the case to former President Trump and his defense team. Prosecutors are concerned Trump will reveal sensitive information and target witnesses compromising the trial. Prosecutors requested a protective order last Friday, hours after the former president posted on his true social platform, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. Trump defends his comments made the day after his arraignment, saying a protective order would violate his free speech. Today, a judge is hearing arguments from both sides. Last week, Trump pleaded not guilty to conspiring to overturn the results of the 2020 election and block the peaceful transition of power. Kristen Wright, NPR News. A utilities commission in California has voted to allow driverless car companies act like taxis in San Francisco. But as NPR's Derek Herr reports, they're facing resistance from emergency responders. The San Francisco police and fire departments have been vocal about their opposition to driverless cars. They say the vehicles have impeded first responders' operations, running through yellow emergency tape and blocking firehouse driveways. Here's San Francisco Fire Chief Janine Nicholson. Our folks cannot be paying attention to an autonomous vehicle when we've got ladders to throw. Nicholson has been urging California's transportation regulator to halt the growth of driverless vehicle programs in the city. But in a three to one vote, regulators decided to allow the programs to expand. Now autonomous vehicles run by Cruz and Waymo can pick up passengers and charge a fare, just like a taxi. Dara Kerr, NPR News. This is NPR News in Washington. From WBOR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shinoy. COVID is on the rise again in Massachusetts. Data from the State Department of Public Health show levels of the virus have been increasing since last month. WBOR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports. The positive test rate for COVID is 9%, the highest it's been in six months, though that doesn't account for rapid tests people take at home. There is more COVID out there than there was a month ago. Dr. Shira Darone is hospital epidemiologist at Tufts Medical Center. She says COVID is no longer severe for most people, but the risks are higher for those who are elderly or immunocompromised. People who are very high risk should be having those conversations with their doctors about avoiding crowded indoor spaces and wearing a mask when they go out. COVID hospitalizations have increased gradually, but overall, this uptake remains far below previous waves. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dale McCluskey. Local families who've been fighting with Purdue Pharma are frustrated with the Supreme Court's decision to pause a $6 billion settlement between the OxyContin maker and local governments. Cheryl Jouer of Marlboro lost two children to opioid overdoses. She was part of a committee that helped structure the settlement. Jouer says that money is needed now to prevent more deaths. I think it's definitely an unnecessary delay. I think the courts have already decided the government wasn't happy with the decision and they're just going to keep pushing and pushing and pushing. And it's lives being lost that I'm, you know, the most upset with. The Justice Department objects to the settlement because it releases the owners of Purdue Pharma from any legal liability. The Massachusetts Air National Guardsman accused of leaking government secrets is filing a new appeal to get out of custody before trial. Lawyers for Jack Teixeira say the government has not proven that he wants to harm other people. Officials tell the Boston Globe Teixeira made disturbing comments about mass shootings on social media platforms. They also say he's a flight risk.
New England residents set to travel to Hawaii should double-check their plans amid the catastrophic wildfires on the island of Maui. AAA Northeast is reminding travelers to check airlines and hotels for delays or closures. If you plan to delay travel, the organization says you should check to see if your airline offers a ticket waiver. It's 8.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. The Red Sox defeated the Kansas City Royals last night 2-0. to zero. That means the Sox won three out of four games in the series. They remain at home tonight where they'll take on the Detroit Lions. The Patriots couldn't keep up with the Houston Texans yesterday. They lost their preseason opener by 11 points. Final score was 20-9. to Canton's Little League team will not be making a trip to Williamsport, Pennsylvania for the Little League World Series this year. The team lost to Maine last night in the New England Regional Tournament. Final score was 2-1. to Sunny and breezy today. Temperatures will rise to the low 80s, mostly clear tonight, and it falls to the low 60s. Tomorrow, a little warmer. It'll be sunny with highs in the mid-80s. Clouds move in throughout the evening, bringing a chance of rain overnight. Sunday starts with a chance of rain, then we'll have highs in the upper 80s, and it'll be partly sunny. Right now, it's 69 degrees in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Sarah McCammon. In a few minutes, we hear from the attorney for one of the Americans released from a Tehran prison yesterday. But first, the wildfires on the island of Maui are changing lives. Hawaii's governor says the fast-moving fires that have killed at least 55 people have also destroyed hundreds of homes. We've been reporting this week on the fires that swept through a historic town and far beyond. Residents have to go somewhere in both the short and longer term. Hawaii Public Radio's Bill Dorman is following the story. Hi, Bill. Hi, aloha, Sarah. So how are authorities helping the people who fled the fire zone? Short term, the focus is on sheltering those who need it and trying to find the missing and connecting families. Also, basic supplies from water to fuel are becoming an issue. It's a story, as we've been saying all week, about the the west side of Maui Island. That's where people lost lives and where the most destruction has taken place. You know, the word devastation is one you keep hearing, and there's a profound sadness with, with all of these losses, but especially the loss of life. The governor says the burning of all these homes makes housing a priority. We are going to need to house thousands of people. It's our intent to initially seek 2,000 rooms so that we can get housing for people. That will mean reaching out to all of our hotels and those in the community. The governor asked people across the state that if you have space in your home, if you have the capacity to take someone in from West Maui, please do. The governor also spoke about President Biden issuing a federal disaster declaration for Hawaii. A lot of that money is going to be targeted at housing. It's a critical need. So are some people having to leave the island entirely? 
Yes, those uh, evacuations are continuing. Buses moving people from West Maui to the main airport in Kahului, which is in the more central part of the island. And then the flights from there, whether those are tourists heading back to the continental United States or, or residents, many of whom are coming to Honolulu here on the island of Oahu. As for residents who remain, Maui Mayor Richard Bisson talked about that today. I did want to also speak to the folks whose homes were not damaged. And I know the question on your mind is, when can I get back to my home? Just as soon as we can try to provide the certainty that we have recovered those that have perished. And that's our goal right now. It's a grim goal, but as we move into Friday here in Hawaii, it's another painful day and very difficult work is continuing. Really grim. Is it possible that some people are still alive and stuck in the burning areas? possible they could just be uncounted. You know, teams are working on this, but it's very difficult. Parts of West Maui are simply burned to the ground, especially in the town of Lahaina. Maui Police Chief John Pelletier said, we have a scar on the face of Maui that's going to last a long time. And while it might sound relatively simple, the question of how many people are missing is just an excruciating one. Honestly, we don't know. And here's the challenge. There's no power. There's no internet. There's no radio coverage. Our pack sets, we're having a hard time getting through on that. Those challenges of communication, a big reason it's so difficult to nail down numbers, how many lives lost, how many buildings burned to the ground. And clearly that's not the priority. There are people to help needs to be met. And the people who did not survive need to be treated with respect. Hmm. Bill Dorman with Hawaii Public Radio. Thanks so much. Thank you. Aloha. Five Americans are out of an Iranian prison, and their families hope they may soon get out of Iran. The United States has been negotiating an agreement for their release. The deal would allow the Americans to go free while Iran would recover prisoners from U.S. jails and get some benefit from its assets that have been frozen for years. One of the Americans now out of prison, we believe, is Siamak Namazi, who's been locked up since a 2015 business trip to Iran. Jared Genser is a lawyer representing his family. He's on the line. Welcome to the program, sir. Thanks so much for having me. Where is Siamak Namazi and the others, and, and have you heard from him? Yes. Uh, well, Siamak and the others are at a hotel um, in Tehran uh, and uh, under a you know, de facto house arrest uh, being held there by Iranian officials. Uh, I have indeed spoken to him uh, late last night, and uh, he's in good spirits, uh, but at the same time uh, quite cognizant of the fact that there are no guarantees that this is over until the plane is taken off and left Iranian airspace. So we really have to be vigilant and make sure that uh, both the U.S. and Iran, uh, you know, work through the issues that need to be resolved so that they can uh, finally be returned to the United States to their families. You're reminding me his father, who was held for a while, was at one point released to house arrest or released to his home and then had to go back into jail. So you don't know that this is over. But assuming that this deal goes through, what is the sequence of events? How is it concluded? Yeah, I mean, you know, this is going to be a prisoner swap. Um, so there are going to be prisoners on the American side, five Americans, and some unknown number of prisoners on the U.S. side, Iranians and American jails. And uh, that will also be accompanied by a transfer of an estimated $6 billion of Iran's own money um, that was uh, paid to South Korea for oil that they had purchased. That money will be put into a bank account in Qatar, um, and the government of Qatar will oversee that account, and the money will only be able to be used for uh, for things of a humanitarian nature like food and medicine. Is this all settled, this sequence you just described, or is there something that still needs to be negotiated? 
No, my understanding is that it is settled and there are a series of events that need to happen on both sides uh, in terms of putting all of the, the details into place uh, so that the deal could be executed. But it is my understanding that this is a deal that, uh, that has been agreed to and is in place. It's easy to anticipate criticism of this deal because it sounds mind-boggling from the outside that Iran's government, with which the United States is so opposed, would get $6 billion out of this deal. How would you defend against the criticism that this is benefiting the government of Iran? Well, look, you know, what I would say is the following is that, uh, you know, this money is not, um, you know, American money or coming from the U.S. taxpayer, but is Iran's own money that is being used in order to bring these American home, Americans home. But the reality is, is that U.S. policy on freeing American hostages has been consistently inconsistent. And by that, what I mean is that, you know, the U.S. doesn't negotiate with terrorists except when it does. It doesn't pay ransoms except when it does. And so, you know, we have to clear the decks and bring home the American hostages from around the world. I think we have to immediately pivot to developing a policy that can end hostage taking as a practice overall. And in my view, that has to be done through multilateral engagement and potential, you know, draconian uh, penalties for governments that engage in this kind of uh, policy practice. Do you think that there is an adequate safeguard that that, uh, people the United States is opposed to in Iran will not benefit from this money? You noted that the Iranian government is not getting the money. It's going to Qatar. Qatar will then pay some of Iran's bills for humanitarian aid. Look, I mean, you know, is this an ideal uh, deal from from anyone's perspective? Of course not. I mean, would we want to give them even their own money? Uh, we would like to avoid that. The problem is, is that actually the policy on our side, which you know, both Republican and Democratic presidents have made deals like this in the past. And so, you know, from the perspective of the Namazi family and Siamak Namazi, you know, our view it would be that it's you know an, an arbitrary cutoff point uh, to say, well, let's just stop doing this right now on this particular set of cases when we've done this for for many decades and so i think that uh you know i would fully agree that we need to change our entire approach towards uh you know saving american hostages taken abroad and what we need is you know substantial disincentives for governments to engage in this behavior and to me that's what absolutely needs to happen next so that you know the united states is never in position to have to be able to engage in this kind of behavior in a couple of seconds do you know how soon the five americans might anticipate being on that plane out of tehran uh, the best that I know is in the coming weeks, uh, but we don't have any precise uh, timelines, uh, in fact, that have been promised. Uh, again, both sides need to execute on this deal, and we would hope that they would do so uh, as quickly as possible. Jared Genser is a lawyer representing the family of Siamak Namazi. Thank you so much. Thank you. When college football returns later this month, it could be the last hurrah for the Pac-12 conference in its current form. The league has lost over half of its members in short order, and that's putting its future in limbo, as NPR's H.J. Mai reports. It appears the landscape of college football changing yet again. The collapse of the iconic Pac-12 is worrisome. Things look bleak in the Pac-12 this morning. In just a little over a year, the Pac-12 has lost eight of its 12 members, including six during the last two weeks. It's a major blow that leaves the league, which has produced more Olympic medalists than any other college sports conference, on life support. And it's all because of the mighty dollar, says front office sports reporter Amanda Kristovich. It's absolutely television money, 100%. The Pac-12 ended up really in a terrible position, unable to really get a decent package that would keep the rest of its members from looking elsewhere. Without a media rights package that would keep its members on a level playing field with those of the other top conferences, 
the Pac-12 experienced an exodus that is changing the face of college sports. Oregon and Washington joined California powerhouses UCLA and USC and will move to the Big Ten starting in 2024, while Arizona, Arizona State, Colorado, and Utah become members of the Big 12. Ultimately, this is a business, and these schools can no longer afford to be stuck behind and taking less than market value. That's James Crepia, who covers Oregon athletics for the Oregonian newspaper. He says the University of Oregon will benefit from higher revenues and a larger recruiting pool as a member of the Big Ten, which has many Ducks fans hopeful for the future. Overwhelmingly, Oregon fans are extremely excited and energized and enthusiastic about the move. And while the big revenue-generating sports of football and men's basketball are set to benefit from the latest reshuffle, it's the smaller sports that could suffer, says Kristovich. It's unclear whether or not there's going to be enough money to charter them. And it's just going to be very difficult to balance going to school and traveling across the country on a regular basis to play your sport. The four remaining Pac-12 schools are now trying to figure out a way forward. But many in the industry believe it's the end for a league that got its start back in 1915. H.J. Mai, NPR News. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Rupa Shanoi. You've made it to the end of the week with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, lawyers for former President Donald Trump are due back in a Washington, D.C. court. We'll have the latest developments in the case that accuses Trump of trying to overturn the 2020 election. It's 819. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Florida is the first state to approve materials by the conservative nonprofit PragerU for use in public schools. Teachers can now use its videos freely, but is the content reliable? PragerU is representing what we would refer to as a logical fallacy, meaning they came to a conclusion that's not based on fact. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. Clear skies and breezy today with a high near 84. Skies stay clear tonight and it falls to a low around 64. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with a high near 85. There's a slight chance of showers and thunderstorms Saturday night. Sunday, another chance of rain and thunderstorms in the morning, then partly sunny and we'll have a high near 86. Right now, it's 69 degrees in Boston. President Biden has approved a major disaster declaration for Hawaii. The move makes federal funds available to those affected by the wildfires on Maui. We're following the fires and efforts to help throughout the day today on 90.9 WBUR. Keep listening. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners find skilled pros to get their home projects done well, from everyday repairs to dream remodels. Reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. From the Cy Sims Foundation, since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at CySimsFoundation.org. And from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business, 
with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Stephen Skeep. And I'm Sarah McCammon. The U.S. needs a lot more wind and solar power to reduce its giant carbon footprint. But the country's transmission system isn't big enough yet to move all that newly generated power to our homes and businesses. And that's why some tech companies have a quicker solution, as NPR's Julia Simon reports. In a suburb of Sacramento, there's a clearing with an 11-story tall transmission tower. John Marmillo is staring up at it. He does that a lot, including when driving. I have to get reminded to get my eyes on the road. I stare at the (laughs) transmission lines. He's often thinking we could be getting more power through that line. That's because utilities often don't have data on the line's real-time conditions, like how hot it is or the wind on the line. That determines how much electricity they can put through. Without that data, utilities have to be conservative about how much power can safely flow. That's why Marmillo's company, Line Vision, is putting boxes on transmission towers. So there's a really small box at the top, and that's a LiDAR sensor, and it's actually emitting lasers. The laser sensors get data about the temperature, the wind. Wind cooling a line, for example, means utilities can safely transmit more electricity. So today it's very temperate. There's a nice breeze. Okay, so those sensors are looking, they're reading the wind, and they're saying, okay, utility, green light go, you can put more power on this line. Exactly. This technology is part of a suite of innovations that experts say could significantly help the U.S. reach its climate goals. The country desperately needs new transmission lines, but building them is expensive and takes years. Allison Clemens, a commissioner for the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, sees these technologies as a way to make the grid work better, faster. You can squeeze more juice out of our existing transmission system at lower cost and way more quickly. This kind of tech has been growing in popularity in Europe. Denmark's transmission operator says by using measurements and algorithms, they can increase power flow up to 30 percent in the windy spring and fall. And there's other tech, software to avoid congestion, new wires that carry more electricity. But experts worry about getting some U.S. utilities on board with these innovations. In most of the country, the more utilities build, the more money they make. Marissa Gillette of Connecticut's Public Utilities Regulatory Authority says that makes things like expensive transmission towers attractive. But cheaper, grid-enhancing technologies? If I'm a utility, I'm I'm not going to be all that excited about that because all else being equal, I have less of a money-making opportunity. I fundamentally disagree with that statement. Scott Aronson works at the Edison Electric Institute, the leading utility trade group. He says there are plenty of utilities choosing cheaper options and becoming more efficient with the existing grid. And they're exploring these new technologies, particularly the laser sensors. I can say safely dozens of companies. As global warming increases the urgency for renewables, in late July, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission passed a new rule that deals with the long lines of wind and solar projects trying to get on the grid. The commission's chairman, Willie Phillips, says the rule requires utilities and grid operators to evaluate the use of some of these technologies, not require their use as of yet. When you talk about requiring utilities to do something different than what they normally do, these are actions that take time. 
and we have to get them right. And so this is a first step. Phillips says there will be more rulings on this tech in the coming months. Julia Simon, NPR News. It's Friday and time for StoryCorps. As a kid, Christy Stewart begged her parents for pets. Her mom said no. She told Christy that when she grew up, she could have all the animals she wanted, which she took to heart. For more than two decades, Christy and her husband Glenn collected so many pets in their Atlanta home, they lost count. We've had all kinds of animals. We've had doves, possums. We've had a goat. In the city limits of Atlanta. We bottle fed them and named them Billy. Put a diaper on them. A pull up. So it would slide off when yeah, it went we to would the bathroom. know when we needed to replace it. Right. But it was a very special goat. Why did you buy the cat? Because I was lonely. I was gone for, I think, two days, maybe three. (laughs) (laughs) It didn't take long. There was the, I forget his name now, the ball python we had. Sting. Sting, of course. And then our son Ben had a wharf rat. He got huge. (laughs) Big rat. Actually, it was really intimidating, but he was the sweetest thing on the planet until... We went out of town one weekend. and Right. Our son thought it would be a good idea to leave his rat and his cockatiel. He wanted to let the both of them be social. Yeah, we came back to a headless bird. It was was pretty (laughs) traumatic. But we we also had this little chihuahua. Oh, boy. Oh, Nemo. I (laughs) could have killed that dog (laughs) on many occasions. He would pee on your pillow. He would pee on my pillow. He was precious to me, but I understand. I have to say, um, your love for animals made me have a deeper love for you. It transferred to people, too. You you really have a, a calmness about you that taught me that around animals, too. And you treat them with respect. And I remember a time where we were just going through a rough time, like all couples do. And it was sort of a low point for us. And there's this abandoned baby deer Oh, yeah. That was about 10 years ago. The mother was nowhere around. The mother was nowhere around. So we got to leave it. We got to leave it. We just had to trust that he would be okay. Yeah. We had to trust the future, trust each other, trust ourselves. It was quite a journey. And it's been a wonderful journey since. Christy Stewart and Glenn Turner, they recorded for StoryCorps back in 2016. Their marriage ended not long after, and both remarried but stayed in each other's and their animals' lives. Today, Christy and her new husband have just three dogs. Glenn's wife is allergic to animals. So am I. This conversation is archived at the Library of Congress. Major support for StoryCorps comes from Dignity Memorial, dedicated to celebrating each life with compassion and attention to detail. They help to plan life celebrations now, so families don't have to later. Learn more at DignityMemorial.com. And from Subaru, who along with its retailers is partnering with AdoptAClassroom.org to provide funding to high-need schools in local communities for Subaru Loves Learning. Subaru, more than a car company. This is NPR. Achoo! Today's top stories are next and coming up in about 15 minutes on WBWAR's Morning Edition. All the city-owned pools in two of Boston's poorest neighborhoods are closed this summer. Now families and activists are asking officials to explain why. It's 829. Coming to WBWAR City Space on Friday, August 25th, the Mortified podcast featuring true stories of teen angst told live from the adults who experienced them. Tickets are at wbwar.org events. 
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Authorities in Hawaii say the death toll from wildfires in Maui will likely go up as they search more areas of the island. At least 55 people are known dead after the Lahaina fire swept through homes, businesses and vehicles. The wind-driven fire forced thousands of people to evacuate. Some ran into the ocean to escape the smoke and flames. Maui County Mayor Richard Bisson says as that fire spread, tourists were advised not to evacuate. All of the hotels were asked to shelter in place. Now, did people want to stay there? No, they wanted to get out. They wanted to get out of Lahaina. And we asked them not to because we were trying to get emergency vehicles into Lahaina and not have this uh, bottleneck. That fire is now mostly contained. The U.S. Supreme Court is temporarily blocking Purdue Pharma's $6 billion bankruptcy agreement. The deal shields members of the Sackler family who own the company from lawsuits related to the opioid crisis. NPR's Brian Mann says the Justice Department objects to the agreement. What's happened over the last decade is all kinds of wealthy companies and individuals accused of wrongdoing have done this. They've used the power of bankruptcy court uh, to block lawsuits, to limit their liability without ever having to actually file for bankruptcy. Critics, including the DOJ and many legal experts, say that's an effort to skirt accountability. This is NPR News. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Rupa Shanoi. This weekend marks the annual sales tax holiday in Massachusetts. That means consumers have two days to snag deals on eligible retail items. WBUR's Irina Machavariani has more. Shoppers in Massachusetts will be able to buy most retail items under $2,500 without paying the state sales tax. Bill Rennie is vice president of the Retailers Association of Massachusetts. He says the tax holiday helps sellers in the quiet season. The sales tax holiday was initially targeted in the month of August, which is typically a slower time in the retail season before you, you know, begin real back-to-school shopping. Rennie says jewelry, furniture, and electronics retailers typically have the most sales during the holiday. The tax break does not apply to things like food, gas, or utilities. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Irina Majavadiani. Massachusetts farmers affected by last month's flooding and a frost in May could soon be able to apply for state aid. That's the hope of the deputy commissioner of the State Department of Agricultural Resources. Witten Pitkoff says the state has approved a $20 million fund to help affected farmers, though their actual losses amount to more than that. The Department of Agricultural Resources is in the process of developing a program to get that money out to farmers uh, as uh, a direct payment uh, to help them recover some of their losses. If all goes according to plan, the application process for state aid would run through the end of September. MBTA rail service along the Haverhill Line will shut down for nearly two months starting September 9th. The shutdown will allow construction along the line, including installation of a new safety system. Shuttle buses will replace train service on impacted portions of the line. It's 8:33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Innuendo. The Massachusetts sales tax-free weekend is this weekend. Hunter Douglas Automated Power View Shades at Innuendo Natick and Innuendo.com. The Red Sox beat the Kansas City Royals by two runs last night. The Sox play again at home tonight, this time against the Detroit Lions. Meanwhile, the Patriots couldn't keep up with Houston yesterday. The Pats fell to the Texans in their preseason opener by 11 points. Final score was 20-9. to A sunny Friday today. We'll have high temperatures in the low 80s. Tonight's skies stay 
stay clear and it falls to the low 60s. Then Saturday starts out sunny with highs in the mid-80s. Clouds gather in the evening and there's a slight chance of showers and thunderstorms. On Sunday morning, there are more showers possible. Then it'll be partly sunny with highs in the upper 80s. Right now it's 70 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 manage food for work. With online ordering from restaurants nationwide, budgeting tools, and payment by invoice, easycater.com. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Lawyers for former President Trump have a date in court in Washington, D.C. today. They will argue with prosecutors and a judge over a side issue in the case surrounding Trump's effort to stay in office after his defeat in the 2020 presidential election. NPR Justice correspondent Kerry Johnson has been following the prosecution. Kerry, good morning. Good morning, Steve. What's the focus of this hearing today? Well, there are so many documents in a prosecution like this one, grand jury testimony, witness interviews, evidence the Justice Department got through search warrants. And as part of the pretrial procedures in a normal case, prosecutors would need to turn over that material to Trump's lawyers. But they don't want to do it without an assurance that Trump won't post sensitive information about witnesses on social media. He's already, of course, gone after former Vice President Mike Pence, who may be a witness at this trial. And the special counsel has said it seems like one of Trump's strategies is to try this case in the press. The former president has been complaining about violations of his First Amendment rights, but there's no gag order in this case, just a warning not to threaten witnesses. So the prosecutors want some more restriction on what Trump would be allowed to say. When might the case itself go to trial? Yesterday afternoon, Prosecutor Molly Gaston proposed a trial date for this case in D.C. Prosecutors want to start jury selection this December and to start the trial on January 2nd, 2024. Hmm. Of course, that would be right around the three-year anniversary of the Capitol riot. Prosecutors say Donald Trump does have a speedy trial right, but so do the American people, especially in a case about efforts to disenfranchise millions of voters in 2020. Donald Trump has a few days to respond to that trial date proposal, but his lawyer's been pretty firm about wanting a lot more time to prepare, and he's planning all kinds of motions to try to throw out some evidence, maybe even try to move the trial out of Washington. This is all really interesting because the right to a speedy trial is for the defendant, but you say prosecutors are saying, we, the public, America, has a right to a speedy resolution. And so there they are proposing uh, this trial to begin right before the Iowa caucuses in New Hampshire primary Uh, and sometime before, of course, the conventions. How would this case fit in? You know, the special counsel says it's part of this D.C. trial could take four to six weeks if it starts in early January. That would end well before the Republican convention in Milwaukee in July. Trump also has two trials scheduled in the spring. One of them is in Manhattan in March. That's, of course, over hush money payments to adult film star Stormy Daniels days before the 2016 election. But the district attorney there, Alvin Bragg, recently suggested he might be accommodating and willing to postpone. Here's what Bragg told The Brian Lehrer Show on WNYC. 
I've been a federal prosecutor, a state prosecutor, and obviously local, um, you know, uh, in matters like this, you know, judges will confer and, and I take a very broad lens on justice. We'll obviously, you know, follow the directives of our court, um, you know, but won't, you know, sit on ceremony in terms of what was charged first or things like that. And Bragg says ultimately the judge will set the schedule. He'll follow the court's lead. And since this federal case in D.C. is widely considered to be the most serious, it may make sense for prosecutors and judges to make that one a priority. Can you help us understand another bit of news here? We have learned that the special counsel subpoenaed records from Twitter or the company formerly known as Twitter. What happened? Yeah, a lot's been going on for years now behind the scenes in this Justice Department investigation. A federal appeals court here in Washington upheld a ruling this week against X, the platform formerly known as Twitter. Prosecutors apparently issued a search warrant for Trump's Twitter account, perhaps to look into his direct messages on and around January 6, 2021. The company X resisted and ultimately got fined $350,000. We may learn more about what Jack Smith was looking for and what he found if any of this comes out at the eventual trial, I'm going to be keeping my eyes peeled. We are listening to the correspondent formerly known as NPR's Justice Correspondent, <laughs> who is also currently known as NPR's Justice Correspondent, <laughs> Carrie Johnson. Thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. Tensions are rising between Poland and a Russian ally on its border, Belarus. Leaders in Warsaw plan to send another 10,000 Polish troops to that border. Poland is a NATO ally and a vital friend of neighboring Ukraine. Supplies and weapons pass through Poland to support Ukraine's defense against Russia. Now, Polish officials think Russia could be sending trouble their way. Fighters from Russia's Wagner Group are stationed in Belarus, and Poland is worried they could destabilize NATO's eastern flank. NPR's Rob Schmitz joins us now from Berlin to talk about it. Hi, Rob. Morning, sir. This seems like a dangerous military escalation in a region very close, of course, to Russia's war in Ukraine. What's going on here? Yeah, this latest flare-up began last month when Wagner's soldiers were relocated to Belarus. Poland's government said Wagner might send its soldiers into Poland and neighboring Lithuania. Then, a little over a week ago, Poland accused Belarus of violating its airspace by sending military helicopters across the border, and now we've got this. Poland has been deploying troops to the border for some time, hasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Uh, This 250-mile border between Belarus and Poland has been tense for a couple of years. In 2021, the government of Belarus began handing out visas to migrants from mostly the Middle East and Africa, and soldiers in Belarus were assisting these migrants across the border into Poland, as well as into neighboring Latvia and Lithuania. All of these are EU member states. And that prompted Poland to mobilize troops and build a steel border fence. Uh, This was all part of an effort by Belarusian leader Alexander Lukashenko to destabilize Europe. And it appears his efforts are ongoing. Lukashenko, an ally of Russian President Vladimir Putin, said this week that he has had to, quote, restrain Wagner fighters who want to attack Poland. So the big question, Rob, I mean, based on your reporting, what can you say about the likelihood of an escalation between Poland and Belarus? Well, more troops certainly makes it likelier. I mean, when he announced this troop build, a Polish defense minister, Mariusz Blaczek, said Poland is preparing for different scenarios. Here's what he said. And Sarah, he's saying here that this troop buildup is meant to scare away what he calls the aggressor or Belarus and to ensure that Belarus does not attack Poland. It's worth noting here that the military of Belarus issued a warning to Poland this week telling Polish citizens that they should stop their government from starting a new war. 
So there's a lot of rhetoric on both sides of the border. Is there any truth to that claim? You know, well, this troop buildup comes two days after Poland's president kicked off the official election campaign for the ruling party, which is up for re-election in mid-October. And critics point out that while the threat from Belarus and Russia is very real, the ruling right-wing party of Poland is going into an election here, and it needs all the votes it can get. And many observers say this party is not above pumping up threats like this border escalation to accomplish that. So between the election season in Poland and efforts from Belarus and Russia to sow chaos in Poland, what's real and what's bluster has sort of become difficult to parse out. But what is clear is that with more troops along this already fraught border, the potential for danger is going up. That's NPR's Rob Schmitz joining us from Berlin. Thank you, Rob. Thanks. This is NPR News. Coming up in 10 minutes, the rising cost of food eaten at home. It's up 3.6 percent year over year, outpacing inflation. The Marketplace Morning Report will look at why. Sunny and mid-80s today, mostly clear and mid-60s tonight. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and mid-80s. It grows mostly cloudy Saturday night and there's a chance of showers. Sunday, another chance of showers in the morning, then partly sunny and mid-80s. Right now it's 71 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Good News Garage, accepting tax-deductible car donations and providing them to neighbors in need since 1996. GoodNewsGarage.org and the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting the colorful fabric portraits of Bahamian artist Gio Swaby, opening August 12th. Learn more at PEM.org. Two Cambridge biotech companies are entering a license deal worth up to nearly $148 million. Agios Pharmaceuticals is buying the rights to a blood cancer drug made by Alnylam Pharmaceuticals. Under the deal, Agios will be responsible for developing and selling the drug. Alnylam will be in charge of the first clinical trial. A throwback Maine brewery plans to open its second location in Worcester. Odd by Nature will open another 1990s-themed brewery at the Midtown Mall. The owners tell the Telegram and Gazette they plan to serve cocktails in addition to beer. A popular fried chicken spot at Time Out Market in Fenway is closing its doors. Bisque Meats and Sandwiches is shutting down later this month. The owners say they're looking for a new location. It's 844. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Joyce Foundation, committed to advancing racial equity and economic mobility for the next generation in the Great Lakes region. Learn more at JoyceFDN.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at WallaceFoundation.org. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. 
This is WBUR's Morning Edition. I'm Rupa Shanoi. Families and community activists in Boston are questioning why all the city-owned pools in Dorchester and Mattapan are closed this summer. City officials say they had to shut down the facilities to complete long-delayed maintenance and renovations. But as WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, the closures in two of Boston's poorest neighborhoods underline a history of public underinvestment and neglect. There aren't many places to swim this summer if you live in Dorchester or Mattapan. You'd have to go to another neighborhood like Roxbury. That's where 84-year-old Mary Hamilton was walking on a recent sunny afternoon. Kids were splashing around nearby at the state-run Melnia Cass Memorial Pool. She remembered bringing her kids to the city's public pools when they were young. I used to take my kids to the pool and to the park and everything when they were little. I didn't think they should be just sitting in the house all day. They need to get out. Hamilton says she doesn't understand why the city would close all the pools in two whole neighborhoods for the entire summer. That doesn't make sense to me. Why close them all? Leave some open and fix those and then do the others. Hamilton isn't alone in feeling this way. In all, city data show 10 of Boston's 18 pools are closed this summer. Many of them were also closed last summer due to maintenance work and lifeguard shortages. Well, I think it's awful. That's Reverend Vernon K. Walker. He's the program director at Communities Responding to Extreme Weather, a nonprofit based in Cambridge. Walker says accessible public pools are even more important in dense neighborhoods with few trees and lots of exposed concrete. If the temperature is 90 degrees on a given day, it could feel anywhere between 115 to 120 in places that suffer from the urban heat island effect, such as Dorchester and Mattapan. These neighborhoods are heat islands due to decades of public policy, like redlining, concentrating industrial zones in low-income areas, and failing to protect green space. Walker says by closing the pools, the same communities most affected by the heat have even fewer ways to escape it. So we know that predominantly black and brown folks and folks of color live in communities such as Dorchester and Mattapan, where you look at Beacon Hill and Back Bay, uh, those communities are not overwhelmingly black and brown. The city blames years of neglect at these facilities and promises the repairs will make them better and more accessible for the future. Some of the locations are also being remodeled as part of Mayor Michelle Wu's Green Buildings Plan. But that doesn't explain why the six pools all had to be closed at once. Some point to a tangle of bureaucracy. The city's pools are operated by the Boston Centers for Youth and Families, but many of these community centers are attached to Boston public school buildings. That means two different departments with two different budgets. City Councilor Erin Murphy has been concerned about this since March, when the council held a hearing on the issue. She grew up in Dorchester and learned to swim at the Murphy Community Center there, which is closed this summer. She says the agencies are finger-pointing over who is responsible for repairs. We can't be squabbling over which department is responsible for this at the end of the day. Murphy says residents deserve better. This money is city money, tax dollars. And, you know, the, the family showing up to go swimming... They don't, they don't care. They don't want to know that it's one department squabbling with another. They just want it fixed. A city spokesperson says they are acting with, quote, urgency and plan to reopen four of the closed pools by the fall. In the meantime, families in Dorchester and Mattapan are left without a single city pool during yet another record-hot summer. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman.
Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour with the latest on the U.S. deal with Iran that secured the release of five Americans from a Tehran prison. And we'll hear how research on lizards could offer insights into treatment for the most common form of arthritis. It's 8.50. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. Hey, it's Peter Sagel. Whatever your summer plans might be, maybe you're heading off to the Berkshires or the Cape or even, God forbid, somewhere outside Massachusetts, take me with you. Download the WBUR app and you'll have every episode of Wait, Wait at your fingertips. You can listen to WBUR live from anywhere and rewind if you missed something or just want to hear one of my bon mots over again. Get the WBUR app and never miss Wait, Wait. Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Friday morning. At least 55 people are dead in Hawaii as officials continue work to combat devastating wildfires on Maui. The Supreme Court has temporarily blocked the Purdue Pharma opioid settlement, which protects the maker of OxyContin from future lawsuits. And Poland is planning to send 10,000 troops to Belarus amid rising tensions with Russia. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. Mid-80s today under sunny skies. Mid-60s tonight and skies stay clear. Back to the mid-80s on Saturday and it'll be mostly sunny. There's a chance of showers Saturday evening and on Sunday morning, then partly sunny Sunday and mid-80s again. Right now it's 71 degrees in Boston. The Supreme Court says not so fast to a massive settlement over opioids. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners find skilled pros to get home projects done well. Reviews, pricing, and booking at Angie.com or on the Angie app. And by Grammarly, offering Grammarly business to help companies large and small communicate better and move faster with enterprise-grade generative artificial intelligence. Learn more at Grammarly.com business. From Marketplace, I'm Sabri Beneshore in for David Brancaccio. The Supreme Court has temporarily blocked a settlement with Purdue Pharma that would protect the Sackler family, which owns Purdue, from being sued in civil court over opioid damages. Marketplace's Samantha Fields has more. Uh, hi, Sam. So to start, can you remind us what did the settlement say originally? Yeah, so Sabri, Purdue Pharma, the maker of OxyContin, filed for bankruptcy in 2019 after being sued by thousands of people for its role in the opioid crisis. It reached a deal last year that would allow it to restructure and emerge from bankruptcy effectively as a new company that would use its profits to fight the opioid epidemic. As part of the deal, members of the Sackler family, which owned Purdue, would put $6 billion into a fund for people who've been hurt by the opioid crisis and for state and local governments that are dealing with it. But they would also be protected from all future lawsuits by, for example, family members of people who've died of opioid overdoses. So why did the Supreme Court block this deal? The Justice Department had objected to the settlement, particularly the part that would shield the Sacklers from future liability. The Supreme Court has now agreed to hear arguments later this year over whether the deal can move forward. 
The central question is whether U.S. bankruptcy code allows people who are not personally in dire financial straits and are not themselves filing for bankruptcy to be shielded from liability in a corporate bankruptcy settlement like this. The outcome could have wide-ranging implications for other similar cases. All right, Marketplace Samantha Fields, thank you so much. Thanks. On now to the second largest economy in the world. China's growth has been slower than expected since it ended its zero COVID policy earlier this year. And one reason is its property sector. A lot of people got caught up in basically a kind of housing bubble. As people invested in homes, more housing was built than could be absorbed. So as demand fell and prices fell, that left a lot of builders and mortgage holders struggling. That is the context for this next bit of news. One of China's biggest property developers has warned it is facing losses of almost $8 billion for the first half of the year. Country Garden, as it's known, missed key bond repayments this week. The BBC's Nick Marsh has more. Country Garden is one of a long list of floundering property developers in China. The most famous is Evergrande, which defaulted on over $300 billion of debt in 2021. Real estate accounts for almost a quarter of China's economic activity, but for a couple of years, developers haven't been able to access the cash they need to service their debts. And with millions of Chinese people's money tied up in unfinished properties, it's another headache for an economy still struggling to recover from the pandemic. That's the BBC's Nick Marsh. Another measure of inflation is out this morning. The producer price index, which measures inflation at the wholesale level, Prices there rose 0.3% in July. They had been flat in June and had even fallen just a bit back in May. Let's see what markets think about that. Let's do the numbers. The FTSE in London is down one and a tenth percent. Dow, S&P and NASDAQ futures all down in the two to four tenths percent range with the Dow future down at 47 points. The 10-year Treasury yield is at 4.135%. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by C3 AI. C3 Generative AI provides chat GPT enterprise search that is verifiable, secure, and accurate across all enterprise data. C3.ai. This is Enterprise AI. And by the new Glassdoor app. Professionals can now join real anonymous conversations within their company, industry, and communities and get answers about careers on Glassdoor. 2023 is shaping up to be the hottest year on record. And temperature affects travel patterns. The tourism industry is starting to see shifts in where people are booking trips and the seasons in which they decide to leave home. Ali Budner has more. Weather has always had a pretty strong influence on people's decisions about where to travel, but climate change is ramping that up. Concerns about heat waves, um, wildfires, hurricanes, things like that are showing up more and more in our uh, conversations with travelers. David Bratton runs Destination Analysts, a market research company focused on travel and tourism. And these will ultimately you know, affect the destinations they go to, the timing of their trip, and even what they do when they're there. Bratton says we're still on the early edge of this trend, but it could deter people from going to some places and lure them to others. Brooke Hansen is with the School of Hospitality and Tourism Management at the University of South Florida. I recently saw some tourism promotion for Maine, and they were saying, hey, come here. We're not as hot as the rest of you. 
So we're going to see that shift in marketing happening as well. Because of rising global temperatures, Hansen says, there may be growing interest in the more temperate shoulder seasons, fall and spring. Hansen says her own state of Florida could see a net loss in tourism year-round, since most of its top destinations are coastal. We're already a hot state and we're heating up even more, and we are very vulnerable to sea level rise. But she says there's this small counterbalancing phenomenon at play. People also want to go see places that are extremely affected by climate change before they're gone. It's called last chance tourism, seeing the beaches and the glaciers, the forests, the animals, and even the cities that might change or disappear. Some people are also drawn to experience the extreme conditions of climate change for themselves, like the Death Valley visitors who posed for selfies this summer with digital readouts at above 120 degrees Fahrenheit. Melissa Kiela is with Bindlestiff Tours, an adventure travel company that operates mostly in the Western United States. People still want to go to Death Valley. You know, we have tons of bookings because they, they want to almost experience that extremity. Kiela did say they had to cancel two recent tours to Death Valley when temperatures hit above 125. She also says they've seen more interest in their Alaska tours and more trips than usual booked for the cooler months this year. I'm Ali Budner for Marketplace. And in New York, I'm Sabri Beneshore with the Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. A sunny Friday today in the mid-80s. It'll be a bit windy. Mostly clear skies tonight and in the mid-60s. Tomorrow, mostly sunny and mid-80s. Clouds gather Saturday night and there's a chance of showers overnight and into Sunday morning. Then partly sunny on Sunday, back to the mid-80s. Right now it's 71 degrees in Boston and the BBC is coming up next. I'm Morning Edition executive producer Dan Guzman. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.